One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello, welcome to the Waypoint UK podcast. My name is Mike Diver, Senior Editor of Waypoint, and I'm joined today by a very special guest, I think a very special guest, and hopefully you will too over the next hour or so. I'm joined by Ian Livingstone. Hello. Hello. Uh, Ian Livingstone, CBE. That's right. And various other letters and numbers and names and <laughs> achievements, accomplishments. Um, I've, I've mentioned to a few people who are asking me, you know, when's the next podcast, who's on it? I was like, oh, bit of a British gaming legend. You must get that bandied around a lot. I guess because I've been in the games industry 41 years. <laughs> Is that just because if you hang around Somebody's long enough, heard of you. hang around long enough, you're a legend. Yeah, yeah, um, I guess so. But yeah, I mean, you've had, I mean, I, I'm really pleased that you're in uh, today because I mean, for a few reasons, really one fighting fantasy, which we'll get to soon enough, which is a, a book series that you started with uh, Steve Jackson so yeah. many years ago. Um, but also because we're 2016 is the 20th anniversary of Tomb Raider. So I want to talk a little sure. bit about your old relationship with that. But at the very start of things, as far as I know it, in terms of your history, was kind of Games Workshop and yeah. starting that. So I just wanted to start there and um, talk a bit about because uh, it's fascinating to me to, to to see how like Dungeons and Dragons, for instance, is enjoying this massive resurgence and tabletop gaming in general. And there you were in a little shop in Shepherd's Bush, right? I think that area importing this stuff originally. Yeah, well, it was actually started off in our flats in Shepherd's Bush. Um, I was sharing the flat with two old school friends, John Peake and Steve Jackson, and we were pretty penniless, had pretty boring jobs, and we played lots of board games. Mm. And I uh, thought, wouldn't it be great if we could turn our hobby of playing games into some sort of business about the games industry? So we decided to publish a newsletter called Owl and Weasel, and we sent it out to everybody we knew in games. And one of the recipients was Gary Gygax, the inventor of Dungeons and Dragons, who lived in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And he wrote to us and said, love your magazine. Uh, here's this new game I've just invented. And it didn't look much, white box, pretty average drawing on the front. And yet it opened up your imagination like no other game had ever done before and probably never will again. And we played it. Steve and I became immediately fascinated and obsessed with D&D. And John didn't like the idea. and Because here was a radical game when you role-playing as heroes and wizards going on these fantastic journeys of the mind, killing monsters and finding treasure. And so we ordered six copies, because that's all the money we had. And on the back of that amazing order, Gary gave us a three-year exclusive distribution agreement for the whole of Europe. <laughs> Which, I mean, this is the thing, you know. So what, what year is that? That's late 70s, is it? That was 1975. Nice, so mid-70s. February 75. It's, it's incredible to think now, you know, with Dungeons and Dragons being everything it became and the, the, the sheer scale of it now, it all started over here with six copies that you yeah. bought into your flat. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we sold the mail order through Owl and Weasel, which was like an instant print thing. And then people started 
to hear about this game, this role-playing game. And, uh, but no one knew how to get hold of it. I mean, there was obviously no internet, mobile phones hadn't been invented, not many game shops, but the word of mouth spread. And uh, I used to see people, we were on the third floor, and I used to be people on the street looking for this games workshop, next <laughs> way to find a shop. You used to open the window, you want a workshop? Up here, mate. You want a little kind of pulley system out the window, you know, put the yeah, money in the basket. Exactly. And we had no, um, obviously, mobile phones didn't exist. Mm. We didn't have a phone in our apartment, but there was a public payphone on the ground floor, and it would always ring. And our landlord, who enjoyed a drink on a Friday, uh, would always get to the phone first. We'd zoom down the stairs, always too late. You'd hear him, hello, oh, you want games workshop, do you? You can go to hell. He used to hang up on the <laughs> And uh, we realised the uh, power of public relations. I was going to say, some disgruntled early customers there, despondent and not being able to get their holds on their hands on, you know, what became this this phenomenal, like you say, just 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 voyage of the mind. Yeah. So we ended up having to leave uh, our our flat in Shepherd's Bush. We'd we'd gone over to Gen Con in 1976, met Gary, and signed up all these fledgling games companies, and. Um, because we were being kicked out of the flat, we had nowhere to live. And when we came back, um, we would go to the bank manager and say, let's try and get a loan. Because mm. we had a you know, fledgling mail order business. And you go into the bank and say, hey, I've got this great game. Uh, it's a role-playing game which you're a hero and, uh, or a wizard and you kill monsters and you find treasure. And he looks at you rather like a dog watching television. And <laughs> she's kind of <laughs> to leave quite quickly. But uh, that didn't deter us. So we had to rent a, um, a van. I mean, we had Steve had a van, which right. lived, lived in that van for three months. Wow. So we could afford at least to have a little office to carry on the mail order business. And we eventually opened a shop, a first retail shop in, in Hammersmith in 1978. Yeah. And then we could actually afford somewhere to live. And you had a property. So was there any times then when you were, you know, between the flat, and then that office where you were just like, what are we doing this for, guys? We're living out of a van. Like, this could have all crumbled. Then. Yeah, this- but you're, you're living the dream. And, <laughs> you know, even though it was probably awful because it was winter and mm. it was raining, it was stinky. And Three guys, we, two guys together? Two. And we joined us. We parked next to a squash club and joined the squash club for a shave, a shower, et cetera, and got really good at squash by default. And then out of the squash club into the mail order. So this little triangular life. But it was just fantastic because we were kind of making it up as we went along and we realized that people were really enjoying setting up Dungeons Dragons mm. clubs and uh, then we had more you know, more shops and the whole thing grew. And then Alan Weasel became White Dwarf magazine then we started to our miniatures so had, people could have their miniatures of paint up to rep- mm. represent their figures in the game. So happy days. Yeah, I can remember when I first got... Um first kind of thing with figures was hero quest remember that it was a milton bradley game i think which was obviously riffing on some of the more complicated the was involved with right with, right with yeah, hero yeah. quest and advanced hero quest yeah so they were like the the simplified versions for, for people like me who was like 10 at the time yeah i mean but but even that that's that's quite i mean that's, i think that's like late, late 80s hero quest stuff like that it's yeah but, that, but, that but before progress, that of course yeah. warhammer came about yes and the reason Warhammer came about is that we'd only had this three-year exclusive distribution agreement with Gary, at the end of which he said, We'd, let's merge the two companies together, TSR and, and Games Workshop. And Steve and I, being you know, independent Brits, said no. So we lost the exclusivity on mm-hmm. D&D, and that had to be replaced. So Brian Ansell, the, who was the MD of Citadel Miniatures, and Richard Halliwell and Rick Priestley came up with the, the basic uh, Warhammer 
hmm. concept and, and wrote the rules, and that became the mainstay of, of workshop over time. Yeah, I say, which has lasted to this day. I mean, that's yeah. we'll, we'll talk about longevity in other areas soon, but like, I mean, when you're making games, because you've made your share of games as well. I mean, yeah, you, yeah I've you, designed you, quite a few. Yeah, you, I'm a games you, designer you, you by trade, really. I mean, do you, do you know when something's going to have those kind of legs, or you know, do you know when you're making something? for a big audience or whether you, or whether you're looking at it going well this is really only appealing to me and if it's only appealing to me then that's potentially problematic i think now i think after 40 years in games i have an idea a mm. uh, pretty reasonable good gut feeling how a game's going to go but you never know the kind of scale it can achieve like with tomb raider we had no idea that it was going to mm. get as big as it was was and we had no idea when warhammer started how big it would get we absolutely had zero idea how big fighting fancy would become mm. yeah which are all now <laughs> just i mean I, I i don't think it's too grand a word to say there are kind of iconic franchises series within the mediums that they're in um but just i mean you you but you sold games workshop right 1991 i mean was that given that was your baby i mean yeah. was that a hard decision to take you just said like you'd refused a merger, you know. Yeah, it well, it, it was, you know, we'd done 17 years at Shop. It was our baby. Um, Brian Ansell, who was MD of Citadel and had created Warhammer, he was taking more control because Steve and I were also at that time writing Friday Fantasy yeah. Game Books. So you can't run a growing business like Workshop and write, come home to our respective homes and write uh, fancy novels till yeah. two o'clock in the morning for any long period of time. So Brian took more and more control of workshop. Um, we became you know, less involved in the day-to-day -day running of the business. And it just seemed a logical sense that we we uh, agreed to a to a buyout, basically. Um, I'd also become very uh, enamored by the growing video games industry. Mm -hmm. I'd written the design for the launch product of Domark. Back in 1984, Death Trap Dungeon, one of the Fighting Fantasy game yeah. books I'd written, was number one in the charts. And this startup came to me and said, would you design this game, which was Eureka. And uh, so I invested in that company at the time and uh, eventually joined Domark after sending out a workshop and Domark metamorphosed into IDOS. Yeah. So let's pick up on that then, because I mean, IDOS was the, the publisher behind Tomb Raider, which we sort yeah. of mentioned then. But when when you just before we started recording, you were just recounting an awesome tale about how how Tomb Raider came into your you know you got involved in it. So why don't we pick it up there? Because okay. you were looking at uh, this other studio's uh, properties that it had, basically the games it was working on. Well, in, we floated IDOS in 1995, uh, small flotation, uh, and needed to grow quickly, get some scale into the mm. business. And the only other company listed was Center Gold. And they were suffering um, some cash problems. They had a pretty torrid time during the demise of the 16-bit era. Mm -hmm. Had lots of inventory they couldn't get sold. And their investors kind of got tired of the whole process. So it was an opportunity for Ardos to acquire Center Gold. And I was tasked with doing the due diligence. For those who don't know what that is, it means you have to go around and look at all their assets and see yeah. they are that they say they are and mine was to look at all the studios and the content so i went to first to silicon dreams it was at march 96 it was snowing hard and um i had kind of debated whether or not to cross over the Pennines to go to derby to go and visit core design mm -hmm. that was one of the studios owned by center gold but mm -hmm. i did 
And I was greeted by Jeremy Heath Smith, the, the MD of Core, who took me around the studio, showed me all the games in development. And in the very last room, the door opened and there was this female adventurous on, on the screen. And oh. I guess, you know, cliched, but it was love at first sight because oh. here was a, a, a figure in a game that I'd never seen before, a female, secondly, a 3D character moving in a 3D world into the screen as opposed to the traditional side-scrolling games mm. that was around that time. And it had fantastic technology, fantastic graphics. You could have, it wasn't just moving in, there was actually height in the, in the, in the, in the terrain. And um, it's kind of like all the stars were aligned. So I got very enthusiastic about what was turned out to be Tomb Raider and mm. Lara Croft. And we acquired Center Gold. And six months later, we launched it. And I think we had 100,000 units in the budget. And over time, sold 7 million copies of, of Tomb Raider 1. It's not so, a bad underestimate, is it? That's, uh, yeah, it was, it was all good. That's pretty crazy. I mean, what, what do you think hooked people that hard then? Because like you say, it wasn't the type of game that we were really seeing before i mean i can remember that that like the future is now transition to kind of sat well you know bless its poor bless its you know rest its soul the saturn yeah and obviously the playstation the behemoth that came i mean tomb raider came out first on saturn of course um which uh you know which which was apparently didn't have the 3d technology necessary to make it work all that well but i guess you had it running yeah it was running fine but you know playstation were pretty keen to get a bit of a monopoly going on some of the premier titles because software sells hardware so Wipeout and Tomb Raider became some of the lead franchises that sold uh, the PlayStation yeah. because they managed to get a, an exclusive yeah. on, on those on those on those titles. And um, yeah, it was uh, pretty exciting times. Looking back, it's easy to look back. You know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. But I mean, when you see how that game was playing, can you see it as a very much a kind of prototype for kind of these the, the 3D quote unquote action adventures that yeah. we play today? I mean, it's very easy to see how a series like Uncharted riffs on Tomb Raider. Yeah, but not even just because of the plots and the places that he goes to, but yeah. just the way it plays. I mean, it did so much for well, some of the for 3D gaming on right? Uncharted were also in worked at Crystal. Oh, were they before? Oh, wow. um, so clearly, it was an influence or inspired by. Mm, mm. But it was all really down to the, the small team of six people at Core Design. I mean, they achieved something monumental. Yeah. The vision of, of Toby Gard, the creator of Lara yeah. Croft. I mean, he'd been tasked to create a new character to replace Rick Dangerous, which was a PC <laughs> game. I remember it had it on the with, Amiga as well. Yeah. And everyone thought he was going to come up with another male character. And because he's argued that you know, with the rise of girl power, um, Nana Cherry, Tank Girl, mm. why not have a, a strong, in, independent, intelligent, athletic female lead character, especially one that's going to be a 3D character moving into a 3D world. And supported by the, you know, the brilliance of the engine that was created, the level editor, which is easy to create lots of environments that were just easy to traverse. Mm. And these three pillar components of, of Tomb Raider, which was you know puzzle solving, exploration, and combat. Um, it was just bound to be a success, but no one knew how long and how big Tomb Raider would be. But as we see now, she survived the test of time the same way as James Bond has in film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and has moved into film. I mean, with more films to come, I think there's new Lara coming. Yes. In, isn't so I'm told. Yeah. I was involved with the first two. Um, you were personally involved with the first yeah, two. Yeah, we went over to California and we picked Paramount and had. Uh, Fun times uh, negotiated with Larry Gordon Associates, who were the producers, right. and we had uh, 
you know, Jeremy Heath Smith had an executive producer role, which gave us as a team the the veto over the cast and over the uh, script. And when Larry Gordon's team said we'd like Angelina Jolie to play the role of Laura Croft, we said. That's absolutely fine with us. No problem yeah. whatsoever. <laughs> we'll go with that. But have yeah. you got any ideas for the butler? Well, there's this guy in Red Dwarf. Maybe you should look at him. Yeah. That's always thought that was some odd casting. That must be his biggest yeah. role in America, Chris Barry. But at least it was a it was a good film. You know, it wasn't mm. a lot of games characters had been treated pretty badly by Hollywood, but yeah. it was enjoyment. Yeah, it was definitely mass market entertainment. Yeah, I didn't quite find that. There are some, like you say, some tragic examples. Poor old Street Fire never really recovered <laughs> from the touch of Jean-Claude, did it? Um, but it's funny, I mean, you know, you say about Lara lasting the test of time, and, and, and I, I think it's reasonable to say, I, I was playing it again last night, like Rise of the Tomb Raider, which is the, the latest one, of course. I mean, it was one of my favorite games last year when it came out as an exclusive on, on Xbox and now on PS4 I'm playing it again and it's just a, such a terrific game and it, yeah. it is I mean I, do you get the chance to play all of the new Lara's when they come out all the new yeah, Tomb Raiders I do stuff? but yeah. I don't play as many console games as probably people think I do because yeah. uh, I, I play a lot time you're a busy man time yeah. is busy uh, and yeah, I am a busy person with lots of different companies I advise and help mm. but I'm also a big board games player as well yeah. I got over a thousand board games <laughs> at home let's get that out a photo there with you right with now you know I'm happy to admit to it and I play a lot of mobile games but to commit a long period of time to console gaming is uh, pretty tough these days even though it's you know, a very enjoyable experience mm. you know, sort of interactive yeah beautifully graphic intense experience like a Hollywood film you know I usually only have time to snack on on mobile devices these days but Tomb Raider, yeah, it was a huge success. The The only bad bit I can remember is when we had to move the development from core design to Crystal Dynamics. Right. Core had executed brilliantly five iterations of Tomb Raider on PlayStation 1, but being tasked to move over to PlayStation 2 was perhaps a bridge too far. Right. They were you know, pretty exhausted by delivering every year a new title, every year having to execute uh, and come up with some brilliant new ideas, new mm. adventures. And there was a bit of a bottleneck in tech and net result was it, Angel of Darkness was not the game it should have been. And right. the camera was a bit out, the control was off. And that was uh, probably the first time, as I remember, that Tomb yeah. Raider took a little bit of a, bit of a critical dip. And, and you know, players like kind of, they weren't revolted by it. They still still bought it. But and yeah. also, she was running around Prague and Paris rather than mm. running through tombs. So yeah. the fans were a bit, you know, disappointed. Um, Lovely but, cities, though they are. But yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> but um, you know, like James, not every James Bond film's been great. But, yeah, um, absolutely. The fan base still forgave her, and yeah. and look where we are today. Crystal making amazing games. Yeah, I mean, I I, I totally agree. I, we had a podcast a couple of podcasts ago. I had a guy on. Um, and we were talking about you know favorite games of this year, and he was just banging the drum for Rise so much. Yeah. I mean, it's it it it's one of those. I mean, she, it's funny, like because she was. It's, it's it's hard for maybe younger listeners to to appreciate this, but you know, ninety seven, ninety eight, sort of time. Lara was genuinely everywhere. Yeah, like when when a video game character is advertising drinks on TV, Lucas that, that that broken out of the medium, hasn't it? I mean, she's. Yeah. I mean, we had Mario do, you know, well, Nintendo are very, very, you know, 
they like to keep hold of their properties, I know, but we'll see where the you know, Mario Brothers hit, hit cinemas and yeah. there was that idea of reaching out to a medium. But I think Lara was probably the first breakthrough star, I suppose, from the medium into other places. Well, she would you went say? beyond the games yeah. uh, industry and uh, graced the covers of Lifestyle magazine, mm. not just games magazines. First virtual character ever to be on the cover of Face. Yeah. And as you say, she was used to promote other people's products. So some big tickets were using Lara Croft. And that was great for IDOS for two reasons. One, they were paying the company money to use Lara Croft and yeah. B, promoting Lara Croft as much as they were their own products. So yeah. it was a win, win, win. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you think that, you know, having seen her as she was that very first time you walked into court to how she yeah. is now, do you think the development of Lara has been good? I mean, I think, you know, as a, like you say, that's still this very strong, independently willed yeah. female role model in video games. You know, I think yeah. the new Lara is great. You know, the kind of take no nonsense. Yeah, and, she's and, become and a very, very believable yeah, character. Yeah. A lot more. Do you think she's yeah, a bit more comic book earlier on? Yeah, it yeah. was. And also, it was in the 90s. You know, yeah. There was a lot more lad magazines out mm. there. So people didn't question everything about a character before it was put yeah. out there. Uh, but the games industry has grown up the same way as other early industries and uh, a lot more responsible for its content and. And you know, Lara Croft has become a, you know, a pillar of society almost. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, but I still remember the iconic Laras of old. You know, the cover of the very first Tomb Raider is mm. perhaps for me the most memorable one. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I was, I was. I, did you see the way that they um, packaged the Rise of the Tomb Raider for the this twentieth anniversary one, where it's in a little PS One case? No, I haven't seen. Have you not no. seen that? I don't, I don't know how wide. I think it was reported and stuff. I've got one at home, so it looks like. You know, it's the old kind of the, yeah. that same same size cases. But it's funny you, you mentioned mobile gaming because Lara Croft Go was great. Did you ever have a bash at that? I saw it was very successful, yeah. as was Hitman Go. Yeah, um, and well done them getting uh, to digital. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> eventually. Well, Hitman's been been a bit of a quiet success of this year as well. I mean, it's yeah. See how it goes. I mean, that's that. There, that's an old IDOS thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was released, I think, in two thousand. Yeah. First. So in terms of what you did at IDOS, which I know is, you know, not, are you life, life president of that company now, technically? Um, I, well, I was, I was life president of IDOS. Yeah. Uh, but IDOS is a brand now. Yeah. And so when Square Enix acquired IDOS, um, I thought it really has to be only a matter of time where I kind of cut ties. And mm. Did it with Workshop, now I've done it with IDOS. So I've let go of that title it's <laughs> not what, for life <laughs> but what i mean you know tomb raider aside i mean what other kind of what were your kind of favorite projects that you oversaw in that role then when you were at idos well i was involved mainly in content because i'm the, yeah. the games guy i, I love uh, original in ip you know coming up with new franchises and ideas and hope they resonate with an audience is what really gives me a lot of satisfaction from fighting fancy to the workshop mm. stuff and to idos so Working with the developers at IDOS was really exciting. Coming up with ideas myself, you know, I came up with the idea to do a Who Wants to Be a Millionaire game, mm. uh, Pony Friends, um, had a lot of influence in, in all their major titles, signed Lego Star Wars. Uh, it's just a small, small deal, without, you know, just, yeah. a, just a small thing. Because they'd been turned down by most of the publishers. I bet, yeah. And uh, I thought it, it was Lego, fantastic. It? Lego can't work as a video game. Yeah, hello, Lego and Star Wars, quite well-known brands, yeah. <laughs> possibly could work it's together. It's now, isn't it, when you think about it, but yeah, it's crazy. And, and in, in terms of the developments you've seen, obviously that move from what was the 16-bit era 
to PlayStation. Yeah. That's that was quite a big sea change. But I mean, what other things have you seen? I'm wondering if you've like, you know, if you, if you look at what VR is doing now as substantial steps forward for the medium and how we play yeah. and how we interact, whether it, it feels a bit kind of gimmicky to you. I don't know. I'm interested to know your thoughts on that, that kind of side of things because Lara has kind of grown up yeah. with every hardware generation. You know, looking better, producing arguably better. You know, arguably these last two are my favorite two Mario games. I think of all time. What's interesting and fascinating about the games is that technology evolves a medium like no other entertainment mm. medium. You know, film and music, TV don't transform the way games op- games do. You know, ten years ago, Facebook wasn't around, and suddenly it becomes a huge platform for social games. Mm. Then along comes smartphones, and that gives another extraordinary opportunity because a lot of people are intimidated by a sixteen-button controller. <laughs> So rather than admitting they're no good at games, you just say they don't like games. But suddenly Apple comes along with swipe technology and anyone can become a gamer. Plus access to the App Store made it very easy, one-stop shop for your gaming content, all you can eat. And free-to-play makes the the delivery uh, and choice infinite. Are you you kind of pro-free-to-play or do you think it's some... I don't know. Exploitative is the wrong word, but it well, had a bit of a bad rep for a while. Yeah, well, it's free it? at the point of delivery. Yeah, <laughs> free after, to after that access. It's just yeah. you, but only two percent, or at the most five percent of people spend money inside yeah. free to play games. Ninety-five percent act as the viral spread. It's those. I think the ones who spend are either impatient or have got an ego problem. They you know pay to win <laughs> in many ways. But uh, I like the medium. I like mobile games. You know, yeah. I'm involved in quite a few, of uh, several of which are. I'm free to play. So I'm still put my finger in everybody else's pie. Chair um Sumo, that's the only console games company I'm right, involved so with at the moment. In Sheffield. In Sheffield right, yeah. and they develop Little Big Planet. Yeah. Uh, the, Did Snake Pass Snake there, Pass is their yeah. new IP that's coming out next year. Um they're working on Dead Island Two, also doing crackdown. So these are, you know, big mm. old big old titles. Yeah. And uh, you know, Sheffield is quite a an unknown but brilliant force for games creativity. Yeah, I wouldn't immediately leap to it. Well, is, is Team 17 around that part of the world as well? The Yorkshire? Yeah, There's slightly north of that. And then oh, yeah. you've got a few people, quite a few studios in, in around Nottingham, and of course, Games Workshops in Nottingham. Mm. So, yeah, East Midlands, creative <laughs> force for games. It is, it's, it's funny. I mean, I guess, I guess we automatically gravitate towards obviously Japan being a powerhouse of games production and, and, and America to some extent. But yeah. do you, is the UK sometimes guilty of not celebrating our own a little bit? I mean, well, this is one of my hobby horses. I try and get government connected to games as mm. much as possible, and try and put a positive spin about games in, in in the media because we are very good at creating games. Everyone having access to the BBC Micro in the eighties and the Sinclair Spectrum got kids programming yeah, back yeah. then. Plus, we are naturally creative. Look at our film, fashion, music, uh, architecture, publishing. Of course, our games industry. You know, put creativity with high technology hey presto video games so we got <laughs> off to a flying start you know matthew smith and then you know populous and elite mm, and all those mm. early triumphs uh you know matthew smith money minor and then tomb raider came along and we're punching well above our yeah. weight oh and you mentioned wipeout that was a british game wasn't yeah. it Psygnosis, yeah and at the last count there's over a thousand game studios in the uk most of them mm. are micro studios but some of the biggest franchises in gaming history have come out from the UK, you know, from Football Manager, uh, Grand Theft Auto yeah. Five, of course, the largest entertainment medium in any industry. It generated a billion dollars of revenue in three days. 
Hello. That's, that's, I mean, yeah. I don't know. As, We're as some, very good. Some with your experience and your your kind of you know the, all those kind of roles you've you've been through, you must have looked at that GTA Five launch and just gone, "Wow, this is." You know, well, that's uh, exactly the sort of thing we should be incredible. celebrating yeah. as a nation. The economic, cultural, and social impact of of, of Grand Theft Auto Five is enormous, mm. and yet a lot of the popular press tends to talk negatively around some of our great success stories in games. Yeah. And games have always been seen as trivial, and I think they should be used a lot more in in as a learning tool. Because if you can part your prejudice against one or two titles and think cognitively what's happening when you're playing a game problem solving you cannot get through a game without problem yeah. solving you're learning intuitively you can fail in a safer environment you can you're encouraged to try again and not punish for making mistakes and creativity abounds you know, minecraft children learn so much through playing mm. minecraft um, they can build these wonderful 3d architectural worlds, share them with their friends and you know who wouldn't want to become an architect after playing minecraft and you can add context. Like Railroad Tycoon, for example, you take control of building a theme park, the staffing, the rides, adjusting the prices, and you do it right, the customers come in. If you don't, they yeah. don't. And you tweak the parameters. So that's kind of a cross-curricular learning experience mm. which simulates a real world. That gives massive learnings to children to, to just to play a game. But play is always seen as trivial. Yeah, It's not... It doesn't seem to have any rigor about it, but why can't learning be fun? Yeah, it's funny when you, you kind of you know, mentioned then about how certain sections of the press still want to uh, see the negative sides to gaming. Is that is that partly because of the language we use? They like say we play, we game, and these things are kind of seen as not serious. Is it, you can't shake them yeah. off because yeah. that's what they are. They video can't games. measure it, and yeah. you can't measure the contribution. But when we arrive in this world, we interact with it and mm. we learn as babies through play. Yeah. That's a natural learning way. And as we get older, we enjoy solving puzzles and we attach rules to puzzles that become games and we interact through games and play is natural. And I don't think you're ever too young to start or ever too old to stop. No, well, I hope not. I mean, <laughs> you, know, you, you still play. What do you think about like things, I mean, not necessarily kind of esportsy games on online, but I mean, one of my favorite games of this year has been Overcooked, and you can play with your friends and share the experience. Mm. And of course, you would have uh, been working on games, a lot of games that you played locally with people. I mean, do you think broadband, just just the speed of broadband that we have nowadays, has been a massive factor for kind of acceptability, I suppose, of games, being able to link up with your friends, and, yeah. and video games almost becoming social tools as much as learning tools as much yeah. as entertainment you know what are you doing tonight i'm hanging out with my friends on fifa or rocket league yeah. or you know minecraft minecraft is practically a social media platform for for kids yeah you know and adults but you know mainly kids yeah it's great and it's going to get better um <laughs> i hope i could be around to see the the time when we can actually see be with our friends mm. virtually in another yeah. world and actually be living dungeon dragons rather than just thinking about it of living Dungeons and Dragons. Whenever I think of like, you know, the people, do you remember the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon? The, in the it was 1980s? shocking. Yeah. Well, I liked it at the time. Well, it wasn't you know. shocking. It was shocking for someone of my age who bet, played yeah. serious D&D, but as a child, it must have been amazing. It looked wonderful, but it never finished. I always, I always think about those kids being stuck in that fantasy realm. Are they and still the, there? They yeah. never finished the series. <laughs> so yeah, presumably they're stuck in this strange limbo. But the, only, the thing that upset me about that as a child of the 80s was that, we all know who Optimus Prime is. Nice, heroic Transformer. And the same voice actor did uh, the nasty wizard in 
in Dungeons and Dragons and I couldn't that must have been terrible in my head for it was you. practically the same voice when you listen to it now <laughs> it's very upsetting um, but, but I digress um, business hat on I, I wanted to ask you because we've had a bit of a turbulent 2016 um, if the UK does what it, it, it thinks it's going to do and leave the EU what impact could that have oh it suddenly turned serious on on some of those studios we, we talked about that need celebrating because I mean I know for a fact that I mean I, you know, I've spoken to other developers and I know people in the studios and they're like well you know, we use talent from the mainland to, to come here and help us make these amazing things. Yeah. I mean, do you feel that the UK games industry is kind of playing a bit of a waiting game here to see what goes on or, or, or are people kind of taking measures against the B word, the Brexit? Well, games industry, along with most creative industries, were very much pro-Remain mm. um, for various reasons, not just the cultural fit and being part of Europe from a, business point of view we need unrestricted access to the single market and unrestricted access to eu talent now since june 23rd i've heard lots of cases where those people living in the eu who'd been offered jobs in uk studios have since decided not to come because they don't want to feel that a they're wanted or b might be told to leave or go to all the hassle of bringing their families over without certainty. Mm. It's the uncertainty that's a big problem. And access in the single market, if we don't have unrestricted flow of, of goods and services, that, again, could be a problem for, for game studios. What's going to happen to the digital single market? What's going to happen to um, free um, flow of data? Mm. I mean, there's lots of things people probably haven't even thought about that could yeah. be problematic. On the plus side, you could say, hey, those are being paid in dollars. They're suddenly doing okay because uh, the, the pound has dropped so mm-hmm. much. So short term, some games companies will be doing very well. Thank you very yeah. much. But I don't think it's anything that people wanted or still want to happen. Yeah. But we're being told to make the best of it. So the best of it we will try and do. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope that it doesn't you know, dent the productivity in this this country uh, too much. Because like you say, I, mean, you know, I mentioned it then, you know, I'll use it as an example, Overcooked, a game I've enjoyed very much, published by Team 17, I'm not trying to plug it or anything, but made by two people. And those are the kind of breakthrough things you you, you must have seen over the yeah. years. Where like, like you're saying, that first Tomb Raider to be effectively made by six people, that's yeah. mind-blowing, really, isn't it? Like, <laughs> <laughs> But it's getting harder to do that. These are the exceptions around the rules today. You know, that, that If you just look at the App Store, for every Angry Birds, there's 10,000 dead birds out there. There's a lot of yeah. games that don't generate any revenue unless you're featured or you've got a huge budget to do user acquisition, you're just going to wither on the vine and no one will know you even exist. Mm. So there are challenges for, for people on mobile platforms and probably on Steam as well. Every platform is getting pretty jammed with content. Yeah. So uh, I wish them all well. I mean, do you get the opportunity in your, you know, when, when you go and meet people to, to kind of advise and sort of say like, how to stand out in that marketplace and like you say i mean clones are clones are clones you're always going to get them unfortunately trying to ride on the coattails of someone else's success but you must see games that have promise and just sort of think if you just wait on that for six months to a year let it bubble let it simmer and then then release or then look to do something you know because you don't want to like you say it's so jam-packed we just saw i mean a big game titanfall 2 came out ea game that just died commercially relatively speaking because it was sandwiched between these other big games well, in console, the, the big franchise is getting bigger. Mm. Uh, the ante is being upped in terms of production values. Uh, more and more is being spent because it has to be spent because the processor powers of the machines are getting bigger. So you have to deliver on 
on that potential, then you have to complement that with an equally larger marketing budget. Yeah. And everyone wants to play the same titles, so it's no surprise the you know, the FIFA's, the Call of Duty's, the GTA's, the Tomb Raiders. Mm. Well, Call of Duty sales were down this year. I mean, it's all yeah. relative, of course. It's yeah. still we're selling six figures in a week, but yeah. I mean, is that I don't but know. Is that the franchise fatigue? That's been squeezed. Yeah, the ones that aren't AAA by brand or production values mm. that are just kind of falling off the edge of the cliff because people have got so much choice elsewhere. Mm. Whether it is Steam, whether it's mobile. What about VR? What about AR? You know, the Pokemon phenomenon. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of choice out there for people. Yeah. I mean, I, I struggle with it all the time when I get home and I think, I, 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 I need to play something, but there's... Yeah. Time is a commodity time. we're all short of. Yeah. Like I said, that's why I can't play as many console games like I used to do. But I still play my board games. Still the same games group. So why, running why? since 1986. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I mean, you, you know, you families and, and whatnot i mean so you still have the regular kind of meetups with them and yep it's uh same people steve jackson mm-hmm. uh, some people will know who he is yeah. i've definitely heard of that man uh clive robert who's was owned a company called dr studios right. and two non-gaming guys mm-hmm. uh sky and, and and mark but uh we have a cup <laughs> and uh, I'm the secretary of the Games Night Club. I've published 432 newsletters to a circulation of six. It's, <laughs> it's a spoof gentleman's club. There's a, yeah. there's a long waiting list. Um, media have tried to come and film us. We've never allowed it. And we keep a point score after every game. And at the end of the year, the first with the most points wins the cup. Receives a cup, receives a trophy. That's awesome. And yeah. I mean, so what, what have you been your... Because we cover board games we, we, we were streaming some when we when we launched waypoint what have you been your big hits of late then that you that you've loved playing you know from from just a this is so much fun and also from a yeah. game designer hat on just thinking yeah. the way this works is incredible um we've enjoyed playing splendor a uh, very nice card game we've enjoyed playing we still enjoy playing some of the classics like ticket to ride right. and small world and Kalos. uh anything where you can do deals and immediately renege on them. So trial <laughs> games where where luck is still a factor, but it's a minor contributor. It's more all about deals, negotiations, strategies, and being being able to become the smiling assassin. So seeing the longer game as you stab your yeah. your friend in the back <laughs> and uh, take all the their goods. That's uh, I mean, but I, my wife and I we we we've started to dabble a little bit we haven't mm. got many yet but um we, we only this just got been, pandemic like uh, last christmas and we've been a we huge revival in board games as well. yeah. i think obviously thanks to kickstarter people it's funny you should say that well, i was just at indicade in paris last week and um luke crane who's one of the main games people at kickstarter was mm. doing a doing a keynote and he was saying i haven't got the all the stats are written in my notepad at my desk but he was saying like one of the most funded strands on kickstarter is is board games yeah way more than video games and particularly rpg board games yeah more than anything else like their success rate is something is something like 76 percent which is unheard of for kickstarter i mean i don't know do you have a theory why that is i mean are we just enjoying boom times for rpgs well it's very the distribution channel for board games is non-existent there's not many game shops in the uk um so how do you find how do you reach your audience and mm. you can with kickstarter a it's the market telling you whether your idea is any good or not you get the funding and you distribute straight to the consumer yeah so you have, you're bypassing all the traditional distribution channels and you've effectively pre-selling your content rather than making five thousand copies of a game and they all end up in, in staying in your garage yeah 
you've you've pre-sold them yeah and i mean we'll move on to fighting fantasy because i, I really really want to but but when you, you told me just then like it's 35 years next year next year yeah see that's exactly the kind of brand though on a kickstarter tip that i could kind of see like here's the revived fighting fantasy yeah and being through that kind of model saying like do you want this or is that something that ever crosses your mind when you look at these funding methods? I've or, or, had a few approaches about Kickstarter, and mm. I've had twenty-one um, models made of the iconic characters from Fighting Fantasy. Right. Okay. Um, they are resin models, come in several parts, and at some point we will reach out to the Kickstarter community oh, wow. to to launch them, whether or not it comes with its own game system hmm. or adapted Final Fantasy game system or a board game, don't know yet. But the models are done and they look amazing. So all the shape changes, Blood Beast, Sambar Bone, <laughs> Gastromo the Wizard, all the yeah, the, the best bits of Final Fantasy. Yeah. I used to have that there. out of the pit book. I used yeah. to read so some 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 delights from that, no yeah, doubt. Or there's a, some of those in there, definitely. Well, let's just, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know what fighting fantasy is, I know we've mentioned said the brand a few times, but just, just quickly summarize, I suppose, what, okay. what they are. Fighting fantasy game books are effectively branching narrative with a game system attached. They look like normal novels, but they're after, there's a huge amount of difference. They're broken up into 400 paragraphs, numbered, at the end of each there's a choice whether to turn left or right simplistically fight a monster mm. um collect an item or get you know and and your days in a very sort of gruesome way <laughs> there's a large pit and you've you've fallen yeah, into yeah. it see so you by yeah <laughs> there's hundreds of ways of going through a final fantasy game but but only one correct way so it's effectively like analog hypertext mm. so you jump from page to page and the difference was that normally children yeah, they they didn't used to like a passive reading experience as much as an interactive one, and mm. suddenly they were given the power. They were they took control of a fighting offensive. They were the hero, and yeah. they made the choices. So it was all about them, and they could go through it time and time again and get a different outcome. I'm just, just and they the talk about this, yeah. their own adventures, who the monsters they killed, the treasures they found. So it was a very personal experience. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I've, I've got a copy of one of them here. So this is from, this is City of Thieves I've got in my hand. Not that anyone at home can see it. Uh, what, one of my old books. Uh, this came out, look, well, there's only five available. Yeah, oh, I think. Glory times. But yeah, I mean, you've capitalized three times on the back here, you. So yeah. it's all about it's all about you, the reader, the player, the hero, and and these books for me, I think I must have first got one. I was around about eight, maybe yeah. about eight years old, and like you say, I just just devoured them after that because because I, I enjoyed reading anyway. But suddenly there was these things that tapped into you know, I mean, I, I was aware of the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and kind yeah. of you know some of that fantasy stuff, but suddenly I was like here were stories that were in that vague yeah. ballpark area that I kind of controlled. And, and we and tried to give people really perilous decisions to make. <laughs> and obviously it's set in a world of monsters and magic. Mm. And so you thought this world existed. You know, wizards would be casting spells, dragons would be breathing fire mm. at you, and the treasure was there to be had. But painful, painful decisions. I used to love writing bits to kind of lure readers down to their doom. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> a, yeah yeah but that's all right because they had their finger on the last page cheating right? yep that's okay it's Everyone all right cheats. honestly it's like peeking around the corner i used to yeah. see people on public transport everywhere with what i called the five-fingered bookmark 
That used to make me laugh. I, I, I bet if they came back, that's exactly what you would see. I mean, it's like having different, like you say, if it was hypertext link, you'd just open them in different windows yeah. or different different tabs so you didn't didn't meet your demise. But I mean, I mean these, it's got Penguin on the back of it. I mean, Penguin was the company you, you went to for it. I mean, so Warlock of Firetop Man was the first the book. The first one. But it wasn't easy getting published. Yeah. Um, we'd been running these events called Games Day. In, in central London, which was Dungeon Dragons Days, effectively. And Penguin Books came along and had a stand at one of the games days. And the editor, Geraldine Cook, was kind of amused and overwhelmed by the enthusiasm that role-playing gamers showed at games day. You know, mm. sort of kind of totally immersed in the characters that they were, they were role-playing. And she said to Steve and I, would we prepare to write a book about the phenomenon of role-playing? And we counted by saying, well, rather than writing a book about the hobby, why can't we write a book that is the, mm. an experience of the hobby? And she said, oh, that sounds great. And we'd said it, we didn't really know what we meant. <laughs> no, no, you have to do it, yeah. <laughs> we thought we could create something, and we came up with this concept called The Magic Quest, mm. uh, with a synopsis of this interactive book. And Geraldine took it to the, her managing director who laughed at their proposition saying that could never possibly sell yeah. who'd want to read an interactive book with a game system attached yeah. rolling dice yeah right so you have to you know okay, all check that your record stamina, keeping your, yeah, my yeah. god Uber, that just sounds dreadful so it took them a year to make up their mind and they eventually commissioned us and uh Magic Quest became Warlock of Firetop Mountain, which Steve and I wrote together. Hmm. He, I wrote the first half up to the river. and he Who wrote, wrote the maze? That's Steve. He always tried to complicate <sighs> things. He still does. I'm sure he <laughs> won't mind me saying this right now. but uh, That maze, I tried playing it a year or two ago again, like properly, you yeah. know, no, no cheating. No cheating. Oh, I just sure. got stuck. I got yeah. stuck in the maze. I looked up and I realized I've been at it for about six hours. Yeah. But Penguin still didn't really believe in them because they looked like a normal book. The mm. salespeople didn't know what they were really, but they just appeared in the shops. And Steve and I kind of thought, well, it's not doing very well. Didn't hear anything from them when it was launched in '82. So we mentioned it in White Dwarf magazine to yeah. promote it ourselves. And we suddenly heard that a few schools had got hold of them and it kind of spread through the playground and that yeah. spread to another oh, playground. Huge, huge so it was school word me, yeah. of mouth, the most powerful viral promotion you could possibly have became and kind of like an epidemic. Yeah. And suddenly everybody wanted to play the Warlock Firetop Mountain and it sold out and Penguin did like 11 reprints in mm. a month because they still couldn't get their heads around in the fact month. that it might have yeah. a phenomenon on their hands. And suddenly the editor came on the phone and said, perhaps we might need two more. <laughs> so Steve wrote Citadel of Chaos and I wrote Forest of Doom. But there was so much negativity in the media about them because there was no um, way of communicating through the internet about what was going on. Right. The playground chat remained oh, these, in the playground. These, these cult take Meanwhile, hold of British the media were saying terrible things about them. The Evangelical Alliance published an eight-page wow. warning guide about them, saying if you're interacting with ghouls and demons, clearly you're going to get possessed by the devil. Mm. A woman in deepest suburbia having uh, phoned in her local radio station said that uh, her son, having read one of my books, levitated. <laughs> so the kids are thinking, for one pound fifty, I can fly and we'll have some of that. <laughs> and then uh, there was a magazine article saying the danger of interactive play children are using their imaginations 
God forbid they should Ima- ever do that. Imagine that. There and was, then how many millions later? Like, there was, it was petitions. Fine, you know, crazy. Yeah, and well, long story short, they sold 18 million copies yeah. in 30-odd in languages. They were phenomenal. It's, and they increased literacy by 17% because it empowered the readers. But the establishment at first would really struggle with fighting fantasy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like you say, being in a school at that time, that they became something that we swapped that we collected it was something that like when it was coming out to christmas holidays it'd be like which one are you gonna get okay i'll get that one and so you get so you get different numbers because of course that for a while when i was really because this, this predates me really really getting into them i would have got this second hand it's got someone else's name on the front you see so d <laughs> butler owned this before i okay, did i'll sign it to d butler then uh, you sign it to d butler later <laughs> on if you want yeah um but they had the green spine and the numbers on them yeah. so it, you know on your shelf that's what you want if you had missing numbers that was a bad thing yeah. so Do you think it was a good idea to number oh, them yeah because you know, the, yeah. Little, the, the, the collector inside you even as a kid were like well mm. i'm missing 1821 because there's a very strong possibility that they're going to be republished next year because of the 35th anniversary and do you keep the same numbering system, no numbering yeah. system? I think it has to be the same numbering system, even though I know that ones yeah. much later on correspond to ones before it and stuff. And I'm toying with a new one, and where would you put that one in the series? Well, so this new one you're toying with, I mean, I'm, I'm, you told me prior to coming on here that City of Thieves is your favourite, or one of your favourites, one that you've written. Yeah. So th- if there's a new one, you're thinking about maybe sequeling this? Well, it would, wouldn't be a direct sequel, but yeah. it would be quite a few visits to... Uh, to Port Blacksand and some of the characters from City Thieves. Yeah. Would definitely. What is it about there. this particular one with this lovely skeletal man with a, yeah, with a deadly son? That was actually, yeah. that illustration was done by Ian McKay, who's, he's a legend, if anyone is. It's um, beautiful. He, I mean, that, he did four of my covers Black, I uh, did um, City of Thieves, Death Trap Dungeon, Forest of Doom, and Island of the Lizard King. Island of the Lizard King. And you can see the resemblance. Number seven. There. Was it? Yeah, well done. Here's yeah, another. See? Zambar Bone on the front there. Ian went on to work for George Lucas and created Darth Maul. Oh, really? And if you think about it, Zambar Bone on the cover of that with the spike cranium has a a slight resemblance to I'm picking up the vibes. The illustrations are something that that maybe go overlooked until you look back at the books. Some of them are so vivid and so so detailed. Did the internals on that one as well. So it's 30-odd. Look at the motion. I mean, is it possible on a podcast to really convey this? But here we've got a... What type of creature is that there that we're looking at? Well, <laughs> he's a little imp kind of goblin dude. Yes. But he's, he's, he's a, clearly playing a he's, game. He's well, going to pitch that ball. That was a terrible pun. Um, it was a bay, and they were playing baseball. Baseball. There you go. But there's so much life captured in that little picture. Well, everything great. that Ian did had movement and yeah. drama. I mean, the cover of Forest of Doom with the shape changer... Ro- rising off the log with the spines breaking through mm. his clothing. That was another argument we had with Puffin at the time because they were a children's imprint. They wanted to have covers that were very safe for yeah. their parents of the children. So they wanted the children ones with want a, a nice toadstool <laughs> mm. with little gnomes sitting on the toadstools and butterflies circling the gnome. And we wanted covers that threatened to rip the faces off the readers. <laughs> And, and we won that battle and, as much and, as a piece of paper ever could yeah <laughs> nasty paper cuts so we uh, managed to convince them to use the games workshop artists and the artists we knew at the time yeah 
I mean, I mean, they are that you know. I'm so glad I, I dug them out, and they were at my parents' house for years and years, and then they were chucking stuff out. I was like, "Would you want these?" I'm like, "Yeah, but I'm going to keep them." And when I mean, I've you know, I've got a five year old and a three year old myself, and I suspect we'll probably dip into them. They like monsters and yeah. dragon, you know, witches, warlocks, etc. I mean, this stuff is timeless. It, it really is. is, right? It is because it gives power to the reader. They mm. they imagine themselves in the shoes. That's not somebody else's character. They may not relate to. It's all about them. Yeah, and it works wonderfully. And collectively, Steve and I used to go to schools and and conferences and and created an audio adventure. And they'd be like, you know, three or four hundred kids in a room, and we have the sound effects and describe the scene that they're in and like there are four statues in the room mm. and one is black and hideous and worms coming out of its eye sockets there's there's gas seeping out this chest and um and the other things are fine and um i'm and what do you want to do? And they say, well, open the chest with all the steam and then maggots <laughs> coming out of the guy. And we'll say, if you do that, you are gonna, you're going to die instantly. Open the chest! <laughs> and they always want to explore yeah. the kind of bad option rather than the it good goes option. Back to, it's the safe space to... It's another safe yeah. space to, to kind of do crazy yeah. you know, things you would never do in real life. Maybe we'll get a chance to read a few little bits of that. But I wanted to run through some some questions as well. Because uh, we actually, you know, quite a few people sent me some questions to ask you. I'll, I'll, I'll pick out a few, uh, but I, I think I mentioned it earlier on to you. But but a, a guy who works at a website called P- PC Games N, Jeremy Pill, mm-hmm. asked, you know, how do you feel about seeing what was Games Workshop's kind of core business, those kind of RPGs and stuff, bleed into video games? And and I, I guess you trace it back to you bringing Dungeons and Dragons in, establishing Warhammer, and just seeing now how like some of the biggest video games out there. The Witcher, Final Fantasy series, etc., are just riffing on so much of that stuff. I mean, it must. Is it a pride you feel? It's I mean, immense I, yeah. pride and immense ple- pleasure when you know, Fighter Fantasy, in particular, because we wrote every single word of you know, the book you mentioned there, City of Thieves. If people say they were influenced by it or inspired them hmm. or made them want to begin the creative interests or an artist or a writer or a games designer, that is just very, very rewarding. And to hear it from you know grown ups. Hmm. Uh, you know, many years on since they read them is you know, it's a very humbling experience and I, I just can't get enough of hearing these stories yeah. it's brilliant and to know that some of our early work has had a an influence on, on the games industry is also you know doesn't get better than that yeah yeah and I, I guess i mean naming no names but sometimes you know you, you meet people who've been in business i mean you know, music as well or any other industries and you know they kind of fade away from it a little bit it's, it seems to me because we've spoken before on the phone for a previous interview that you're just as passionate now about what games can be and what games can do as, as you've ever been i just love the mechanics of games i love the joy it brings of sort mm. of people coming together and enjoying through this medium of play a really good time and uh you know, I'll never stop playing games. Why would I? Yeah, yeah. I need to rattle that into my dad's head, I think. I think growing up in my, in my house, it was very much like video games were like, you know, the treat, the special treat, not something mm. you should just do. They were kind of frowned upon a little bit. It's funny, I think it's better now. Like I would encourage my boys to, to play a bit more. It's but okay, um, folks. Play is fine. Yeah, you're, you won't levitate if you, well, unless you really want to, maybe. Um what we got here i know that the answer to this is yes but uh james parish asks if you know if you're reading other people's adventure books did you cheat read your way through those i never read anybody else's books ever no none because there was a lot of you wouldn't say rivals but other people picked up upon the format yeah fighting fantasy was first yeah um 
uh, Lone Wolf was second. That yes, was written by which I'd never heard of until Joe today. Diva and Gary Chalk. He used to work for Sick Games Workshop. Right. Because that was quite big, apparently. I genuinely never heard yeah. of it till this morning. Yeah. And Joe and Gary were writing um, was going to be an interactive book series for Workshop, but they decided to go solo. So, yeah, good luck to them. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I, was, I, say I read about it. They, they sold fairly well. Yeah, they did really well. Uh, well it was the number, number two series, I guess. Yeah, number two. <laughs> well, second well, in time. Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. Um, I mean, and, um, and in terms of your own books, I mean, I, I, there were very few that, honestly, there were very few that I ever played properly. Yeah. There was, especially um, when I got to uh, some of the later ones where I just, you know, just, well, just consuming them quickly. Like things like, I'm trying to remember what they call it. There was a Keep of the Lich Lord, I think, maybe. And yeah. Black Vein Prophecy, was that quite like in the 40s or something? I remember having them, but I don't think I ever played them properly. Should I go back and play them properly? Clearly I should. <laughs> you need to buy them all, all 59 all of them. 59. them in your nice numbered series I on your best bookshelf and I've start got, at number one again and go through. I think I've got up to maybe 51. There was a Warlock sequel, wasn't there? There was another Warlock. Return to Firetop Mountain, that was number 50. That was 50, I think. I've got and 50. it was going to stop the series then, Puffin mm. said, all right, we'll just round it off with number 50, which I wrote myself. Yeah. And they thought, hang on, they're still selling. So they lurched on for a little nine game Sorry, books. Ian, you can't stop. <laughs> it's like yeah. Tying you to your desk. Yeah. Well, we couldn't actually keep up with the demand. Yeah. I mean, some of the later titles were, we had um, uh, other authors contributing to yeah. writing them for us. But, but that, I mean, that makes total sense. But uh, I mean, after a while, even I saw it as a kid, it was very much a case of like, this was yours and Steve's brand as much yeah. as it was your, so you were kind of curating it's, it in it's some regards. Idea. Yeah, It's our world yeah. and... But we allowed guest authors in just because Puffin said, we need more, we need yeah. more, and we just couldn't keep up. And presumably you were vetting these things anyway. Yes, you weren't just like, it wasn't, the, so they were coming through you, not through Puffin, like these authors you well, were Well, they were being commissioned yeah. through by Puffin, yeah. but we were obviously involved in the, the selection process. Yeah. I mean, I always used to love the kind of, the shiny kind of shield, yeah. you know, the, the, the glossy, your names on it, just a, a seal yeah. of approval, wasn't it? Um, if, I mean, no offense to Steve whatsoever, but the early books, I remember start playing, tra- trying to play Starship Traveler, and I found it really hard. I told you, he did the maze. Yeah, yeah. I, I, always, <laughs> I always did find your ones that slightly but more. Steve also wrote more some, relatable some, stuff, some yeah. epics. I mean, the sorcery epic was mm. uh, quite yeah, achievable. I, I know people who love sorcery to pieces. And of course, that's had a great. Um, did Inkle do the adaptation? Yeah, I think for he, he had an incredible ex- success with uh, Inkle, did an incredible job yeah. on, on iOS and Android. Yeah. And there was. Um, and, 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 you know, there was a fighting fantasy um, adaptation quite recently, I think. I can't remember what, what it was now. I'm kind of going off script a little bit, but I'm sure There's I saw... There's a Warlock of Fighting Mountain on Steam right. from Tin Man Games who do all the fighting fantasy right. uh, apps. Yeah. So Inkle do the sorcery, Tin Man do the fighting fantasy. Amazing, amazing. Uh, final thing. Uh, well, here goes back to Tomb Raider, actually. Uh, Matthew Cooper asks if the next Tomb Raider should maybe shake up the formula a little bit. I don't know what he means by that, but you know, I mean, we've seen the reboot and rise. They're very much in the same vein. I mean, is too much, should Tomb Raider kind of stick to its guns or do you think that it could be, I don't know, something else? Well, I don't think anyone wants to see Lara Croft in space, do they? So I think you have to stick to (laughs) the formula. That's the jumping the shark moment, isn't it? The cliche. (laughs) That's, that's Moonraker. Like you said, right? No, not all James Bonds were good and Moonraker was not good. (laughs) I think people have a certain expectation of what Lara Croft should be doing in, in a game yeah. and uh, raiding well, tombs, ideally. Yeah, and yeah. as long as you stick with the three pillars in exploration, puzzle solving, and combat in that environment mm. that she's so well known for, I think uh, I don't think you're going to see much to deviation. Not that it's my 
my decision no, or choice. But that, yeah. uh, if it, I was still there, I would not be voting for her to move much beyond her normal realms. Yeah, and do, do you think she's got another twenty years ahead of her? I mean, is, is this is she going to be like a Mario that's just going to be around as long as games are? I, I'd like to think so. Um, if it could be, if it's twenty, why not forty? Completely agree. I mean, I, I, I don't. I think if the quality is there, of the you know, you make a few bad games, then that's problematic, and that's yeah. how series disappear for the most part. Speaking of which, someone does ask uh, Steve Hask, who's a great writer, friend of mine. I'll phrase it as he phrases it: What was the thinking behind Angel of Darkness? Brackets, but not that you likely had all that much direct involvement. Close brackets. I think that, that we already said that's the one where it kind of dipped a little bit. So yeah, was that, that, was that? So that was the first Tomb Raider on PlayStation Two. Mm. And uh, it was technically challenging for, for core design and led ultimately to the franchise being moved to Crystal Dynamics in California for the reasons I gave before. Yeah. Bad control, bad camera and wrong environments and not being able to deal with PlayStation 2 development in the way others had. Yeah. Just just too much, too quickly, maybe. Yeah. Yep. Didn't, um, didn't scale the team in the right places at the right time, unfortunately. But let's not ever take away what an amazing job Core had done to get Laura to that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were a fantastic, they were a powerhouse of the 90s. I mean, I remember yeah. other other games they produced as well. Thunderhawk on the Mega CD. Great game. Yeah. Loved that one. Uh, one more question I'll ask is uh, James Gray asks, and he might have dreamt this, he says, but did you really take up yacht racing in the 90s? I did. <laughs> I, 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 I dropped it in there. I, I haven't looked it up. So yacht racing, Ian. Tell well, me it was that. a thing called an Ultra Thirty, and uh, it was the game. It was the first, in its first year. This boat was called Games Workshop. It was actually called Warhammer. And it <laughs> that's was a, a good ten, name for a boat, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it was a ten meter, um, effectively a dinghy. It would go twenty five knots downwind. It was terrifying speed, and you didn't mm. actually sit in the boat. You hiked outside of it, and I had a guy called Laurie Smith helming it who was uh, a veteran uh, olympic um, medalist and also he'd done the around the world race three times and uh, skippered the boat so he was a veteran skipper and i i enjoy skate sailing as, as a hobby and uh, it was an opportunity to get into racing so i did for a bit i go. don't know clearly well i mean you know there's uh, and that at a time when you know you were so busy as well still so you know fitting it in yeah, well, it was only kind of you know weekends now and then. Mm. I had somebody look after it and you know organise it. It was actually a televised series. I went around Britain. It was a bit, a bit odd, but uh. there you go. <laughs> so there you go, uh, James. You, you really did take up your racing. Well done. Um, I was going to find off the top of your head. Can you remember a chapter that's going to end in death? Um, I can't remember the numbers. No. I'm going to try well, and find. All you got to do is look at the last sentence as your adventure yeah, this is, is over. Yeah, the thing. I was trying to find if something's bold or not. But it, w- it would be amazing, as and if and when there's another one, that you could come back on and see us, and uh, we could we could talk about a new book, hopefully, if yes. any, or whatever happens next in fighting fantasy. Because I'd, I'd I'd love to. The little fanboy in me was like, oh, Ian Limstone, he's going to read some of this book. It'd be amazing. Well, I'd happily read it out. But... Big intro, big intro on City of Thieves. Well, I like to set the scene. Yeah, and long do a lot of character development, and also make people feel that they're not alone. So, in Death Trap Dungeon, for example, you met Throm the Barbarian, who became your friend and aide through the through the dungeon. But then I kind of poleaxed the reader by 
having them have to battle poor old Throm to death uh, because it could only be one person go through Death Trap Dungeon allowed to come out alive. So I remember the cover. used to create a few moral dilemmas for people. I used to, I used to be freaked out by the cover of Death Trap Dungeon. Had a the weird, Blood Beast. Yeah, yeah. With the horrific, multiple horrific eyes beast. on the front. Okay, here we go. I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave listeners with this. So however you got to 56... Would you like to? I tell you, read fifty six for me. This yeah. would be beautiful. You're going to make the moment. choice, are you? No, oh no, no, no! It's, 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 okay. it's, it's a, there's no choice at the end. So there are over twenty guards coming to get you, and it is useless to put up a fight. They drag you off to a room at the bottom of the tower and chain you to a wall. To your horror, you see the two trolls enter the room. They take take it in turns to beat you before passing a sentence of five years solitary confinement in a dungeon cell a few minutes later a hunchback jailer arrives carrying a bullhide whip he fixes a ball and chain to your leg before leading you downstairs to begin your jail sentence you have failed in your mission so that that folks is the result of making the wrong choice that's the wrong choice and and you know hearing that now i can understand why uh the press was terrified of these things <laughs> imagine a little five-year-old now going mummy what's a bull whip <laughs> <laughs> well that's awesome thank you very much ian where can people find you uh to to uh follow you on the socials and stuff where can um, they find you because you're a twitter user twitter, yes yeah. at ian underscore livingstone fantastic and, and uh please follow waypoint uh, at waypoint uh we are vice's new gaming channel and we're having a lovely time thank you very much again ian for My coming pleasure. and joining Been me great talking um, to you about games yeah thanks very much uh, life is a game life is a game and uh yeah listeners uh, see you next time bye